Bismillah, alhamdulillah, assalamu alaikum, peace and love. This is Brother Ali. Welcome back to the Travelers Podcast. I'm recording here tonight, late at night, in Minneapolis, Minnesota, which is my former home. Usually when I'm recording these, it is the middle of the night, uh, either because if I'm at my current home in Istanbul, Turkey, in my studio there, I'm usually talking to people who are in America. So in Istanbul time, it's two in the morning so that it can be a decent time for them. And then if I'm not in Istanbul, I'm usually on the road touring, performing. And so all of these episodes that you hear are usually recorded for me in the middle of the night. And as an artist, that's one of the times that we come alive, you know, but it's also a certain vibe. And um, as I say every week, I'm really grateful for you to be here. We just wrapped up, we just concluded the Travelers Tour, seven weeks, uh, mostly on the West Coast. There were a few Midwest shows and, you know, Southwest, but mostly on the West part of the of the US. And it was an amazing experience. It was also really grueling. And as you, is usually the case, like I don't realize how tired I am, how beat up I am, and how emotional I am until I get to the end because of the fact that we've got a mission that we have to accomplish and we have to be there for the people that are coming to support us, the people that we serve, the people that make it possible for us to live our dreams and do what we love to do uh, and feed our families doing it. Um, it's just so much that you got to go. It was a lot before the pandemic, just especially as an independent artist, because there are so many variables already. You know, uh, business is different for us all the time. Things just go up and down. It's just kind of the nature of you know, being in the business we're in, especially being independent. And now with COVID, you know, and, and we're still not out of the pandemic. It definitely seems like we're hopefully at the tail end of it, but we still came across a lot of variables that were just completely unpredictable. So in certain states, when we started the tour especially, they still had mask and vaccine mandates. And in some of those states, a lot of the people would not go to a, an event where they felt like they were being told what to do vis-a-vis -vis masks and vaccines. And so a lot of the people that would have come didn't come. And they hit me up to let me know that. Like, hey, man, I hate to miss you. I've, I've seen you. Some people have seen us 20 times. Like there literally are people that like have seen us 25, upwards of 20 times. Uh, and they're like, man, I never miss your shows. I can't do it, man. I can't do the vaccine. I can't do the, the thing. You know, getting a test is, you know. And that's everybody's decision for what they want to do with, the, with that stuff. And so there are people that didn't come for that. Then, for example, we were in Seattle in a room that I've sold out, you know, a, a similar size room over and over and over again. And so in Seattle, it was light because that was the first day that they lifted the vaccine mandate and the mask mandate. So there were people in Seattle, you know, some of the places we go to, Oregon and the Southwest, you know, those are more, uh, tend to be more conservative places, whereas Seattle obviously is very, very liberal. And so that usually has a lot to do with how people felt about vaccines and masks and, and, and the pandemic in general. And so in Seattle, there were people you know, probably a third of the tickets we sold, the people didn't come. Like they bought tickets and then just did not show up. So it was just really deep, man, dealing with that every day and not knowing like, what, how is this going to affect different people in different ways? But then also, you know, expenses are extremely high as everybody living in America knows. We try to keep our ticket prices really affordable. And, 
the prices for all of the things that we use and do just just went up. Um, so it was really a lot. It was really a trip. One of the things that I noticed is that it really feels like the people that used to come to the Brother Ali show because it was something to do, maybe because it you know reminds them of when they were in college or some period in their life when underground hip hop music played a major role in their life. Um, you know, people that, you know, are just kind of general concert goers. Like, I felt like we didn't have as many of those people. It felt like it was really just the people that are really locked in and tuned in and engaged with what we do. And so that part was dope, you know what I mean? Because, you know, the percentage of people that, that purchased the VIP package was would be huge sometimes. Sometimes it would be like 20% of the people in this crowd bought the VIP package, which is really dope. And the people that I'm talking to, like you all are listening to the podcast, you know all of our newer music, you know all the classes that we've done, people that bought the Brother Minister limited vinyl, for example. So that was really dope. One of the other things I did notice, though, is that or it just was an observation of mine. It felt like people like forgot or their relationship or their their uh, connection with being present in a room with other people is just different. Like it felt like the participation at shows was different. It wasn't less, but it used to be that people would go to shows and it was nothing for me to try to get a crowd to interact, you know, to because the way that I was raised, and especially on the mic and hip hop, is like the the way that you interact with the crowd and you get them to participate, the crowd interaction, you get them to participate in a way that is overwhelming because you want the crowd, you want to give the crowd a collective experience, not an individual one. You want people, it's like you can have an individual experience listening to my records. And I'm, I'm grateful to God and my producers that like we make records that at their best, they are an experience for the people that connect with them on an individual level, in your headphones, in your car, on your Bluetooth speaker, doing your dishes, you know what I'm saying, or whatever it is you're doing on your workout, your walk, you know. But what we wanted to show is to have a collective experience. We want people to hear their voices together. We want people to move their bodies together. We want people to really feel that I'm not alone in this room and I'm not alone in this world and I'm not alone with the feelings that brought me to this music. That's a very powerful thing that's just ingrained in me that that's what, as an MC, the master of ceremony, that's the gift that you give the people is that I'm here to give you my energy and my thoughts and, and you know my art and my creative thing, but I'm also here to channel yours so that I can feel it, but to, so that you can feel it. And I just noticed that there, or I observed, it was my experience that there were a lot more people that were in a room and it seemed as though they were unaware that other people were experiencing them. Like people that would just be dead stare and those very people would, you know, message me after the show or they would say after the show, that was so amazing, you know, but while the show was happening, it's like their awareness of the fact that they were uh, impacting other people, that like other people can see you and other people are either sharing energy with you or they're not, you know. So that was really, really deep and really interesting. Um, I, I'm very grateful that on this tour, so many of my really dear friends came to visit me for no other reason than they just wanted to hang out and support me. 
Um, you know, some of my dearest friends, man, Ant from Atmosphere came to a few of the shows. And that's my dearest, that's one of my dearest friends, if not my dearest one, you know, it really meant a lot to me. Uh, Slug from Atmosphere came to the Madison show. That was the last show that we just did last night. And uh, coming up on this podcast, stay tuned because we recorded two episodes with Slug that are amazing. We did one in front of an audience, the VIPs. So it's in a room full of about 50 something people in Madison at this beautiful theater. And we, we recorded audio and video. And I talked to him for about an hour and a half in front of the audience. They asked him questions. Uh, and then this morning in the hotel room, uh, we chopped it up for about another hour and a half. And I mean, I always say that I don't, I'm, I'm going to become a really great interview. Watch, y'all are going to be here. I'm going to become a great interview, inshallah. That's interviewer. That's my intention. Um, and I don't know if I'm that yet. But one of the things I do know is that I think be, because of the relationship that I have with the people that are on this show, I think that they are a different version of themselves than they've shown in the past in public. And so I'm really grateful because... You know, Slug is one of the really important people in this culture and to me and to hip hop music in general and to underground hip hop particularly. And um, I, I feel like he really just gave us beautiful stuff. So stay tuned for that. There'll be two episodes like that, inshallah. Today on the Travelers podcast, this is still the month of Ramadan. Thank you so much. I got beautiful responses for the for last week's episode. The last two weeks, we did Ask Me Anything, where I turned the camera off, just turned on the mic, I was by myself, and I answered your questions and reflected on things that you asked me to reflect on. The second of the two wasn't necessarily answering questions, but I got a lot of questions about Islam. And so I just turned the camera on and talked you know, for almost two hours just about what it means to me um, you know, for people that are interested in looking into that tradition, you know, some ways to maybe approach that. Uh, and it was a really emotional one for me. I'm hella emotional. It's Ramadan. It's the end of a tour. I'm away from my family and I haven't been. Nobody needs an excuse to be, an, to be emotional, but I am an emotional person anyway. And I, I am that right now for sure. Um, our episode this week is a really big one. Uh, Imam Zaid Shakir is one of the names that people in America should have known for the last uh, uh, 20 years. You know, we just had the 20 year anniversary of 9-11 uh, not long ago. And it's the case that as my, my friend Azharus Man said, oh, I'm sorry, my friends came to visit me. Uh, Amir Suleiman, the greatest poet alive in this moment. Um, you know, everybody knows how much I love Amir Suleiman, one of my dearest friends. We lived together for a while in the Bay. He came to visit me at the Denver show. He flew into town literally for no reason but just to hang out. Um, I saw my friend Mo Amr. You know what I'm saying? Uh, Mo Amr is a super dope comedian. He has two specials on Netflix, and he's got an amazing show coming on Netflix that he let, he let me watch. Uh, you know, a lot of the series. It's amazing, man. Super dope. I don't know what I'm allowed to talk about and what I'm not. But I saw my friend Azhar Usman. I saw Rami Neshashibi and the people from Iman in Chicago. I saw Mansur Panawala that we talk about on this on this podcast all the time. Uh, our sister Amna Mirza was going to come to the show in the Bay from Zakat Foundation, but she was under the weather and it was really important to me to not get sick, so she was being respectful. But yeah, really amazing people that we saw throughout this journey. Uh, my friend, uh, Sheikh Jamal Diwan, 
came and hung out. And the twins, Iman and Khadija, Al-Tawam, that, um, you know, move on stage with us. Some people call it dancing. They call it movement. They came as well, and their beloved mother came out. You know, just really amazing people that we saw along the way. If I'm forgetting anybody, please forgive me. Um, this week on the show, Imam Zaid Shakir is... Uh, one of the leaders in America, and maybe the leader in America, that Americans should know because he, in the American Muslim community, is universally loved, universally accepted. Uh, Imam Zaid uh, was the spiritual advisor and the Imam to Muhammad Ali in the last phase of his life. Muhammad Ali joined the Nation of Islam with Elijah Muhammad. We talked about him last week on a podcast because he's so important to America and to me and to the world and to Islam, and to sports, and to, uh, you know, any talk about uh, freedom and, and, and justice and equality and revolution. Uh, Muhammad Ali is one of those people. He joined the Nation of Islam and became a Muslim with Malcolm X and with Elijah Muhammad. And he was in that movement until 1975 when Elijah Muhammad passed away. Uh, probably, I would argue, the most important Muslim leader, especially Orthodox, like Sunni Muslim leader in America, was Elijah Muhammad's son, Imam Warathuddin Muhammad. Sometimes they call him Wallace Muhammad. Wallace Muhammad was the son of Elijah Muhammad, who became the leader of the Nation of Islam in 1975 when he, the Honorable Elijah Muhammad passed away. And he made a, a tremendous transition and shift from uh, the theology of the Nation of Islam, which is in contrast to and differs in many ways from traditional Sunni Orthodox Islam. And he, he made a big transition and the, the overwhelming majority of that community followed him into that. And then he led that community from 1975 until he passed in 2008. That was my teacher. That was my leader. That's the community that I came into. Uh, Wallace Muhammad, Waratuddin Muhammad, W. Dean Muhammad. His son-in-law is the one that helped me convert to Islam, was my first direct teacher. Uh, Imam Matthew Ramadan, he's somebody that's come up on this podcast several times. And so Muhammad Ali followed W. Dean Muhammad. Uh, Minister Farrakhan um, left Imam W. Dean Muhammad to rebuild the original nation of Islam. And that kind of became the two streams after Elijah Muhammad passed away. There are others, but those are the two main streams uh, in that community in, in black American Islam. And there are others, of course. Uh, but those two streams, those two branches off of the, the tree of the Nation of Islam uh, were in contrast to one another for a long time. And then in the mid-2000s, Minister Farrakhan and Imam Warthi Muhammad reunited the two communities. And for people in my generation, that made us so happy because of the fact that our parents' generation had a split that we never experienced. You know, that, that we just knew our people in the Nation of Islam we know there's theological differences, but we love them. And we've always just felt like family with them. So, you know, people like Minister Abel Muhammad, Minister Nuri Muhammad, uh, Imam Sultan Rahman Muhammad, um, you know, some, uh, Minister Wesley Muhammad, and even Minister Farrakhan himself, you know, uh, and Jay Electronica, and like these people in the Nation of Islam, like we just love them. You know what I'm saying? I had a sister in the Nation of Islam the other day was my Uber driver. And I got in the car and she was like, 
Ali, brother Ali? And I was like, yes, ma'am. And man, we just had such an amazing conversation, you know, and, and she was driving me to my hotel and she dropped me off and, and we just sat there and prayed for each other and, you know, <laughs> got a little emotional like we do, you know, beautiful thing. So then Elijah, uh, Warath Dean Muhammad, Wallace Muhammad passed away in 2008. Uh, I was there at his funeral. I put dirt on his casket and Minister Farrakhan was there, you know, right in the front. And um, at that point, Muhammad Ali selected Imam Zaid Shakir uh, to be his imam. And, uh, and that's not a claim that Imam Zaid made, but it is very clear that Muhammad Ali chose Imam Zaid to head his funeral. And they ended up having two funerals in Louisville, Kentucky, the Islamic funeral that was attended by uh, Dr. Sherman Jackson and Sheikh Hamza Yusuf and Minister Farrakhan was there, and uh, the president of Turkey was there, and Cat Stevens was there. A, a, lot of, a lot of us were there. I wasn't able to attend. Um, I actually was with Dave Chappelle the night before in Minneapolis. But, you know, that was a major event. And then the, the next day, there was the, like, the celebrity kind of funeral with Malcolm X's daughter and with uh, Will Smith and Billy Crystal and all these, you know, amazing celebrities that came out to pay tribute. So Imam Zaid Shakir is the one that was the spiritual advisor to Muhammad Ali and, and conducted his funeral. And he also founded the first American accredited Islamic college, Zaytuna College in the Bay, the co-founder in the Bay Area. So for as much as we talk about Islam in America, people know very little about it. And Imam Zaid Shakir, when they always say, well, like, who should we know? I always say, like, you guys are talking about Islam. You never have people on TV to talk about Islam that our community actually recognizes. We never see our community leaders on TV. Uh, you're talking about us, but you don't talk to us. And this is the way that the American uh, propaganda machine works. They talk about us. Sometimes they'll choose people that like we don't even recognize. You know what I mean? They might be activists. They might be spokespeople. Some of them might be good. But these are not our leaders. And they say, well, like, who should we know then? Imam Zaid Shakir is, I think, one of the first names that you should know. And there are other names as well. And I mentioned some of them last week. Um, Imam Zaid personally is a big part of the reason why my family lives in Turkey. Um, in 2014, uh, my wife and I are both converts to Islam. We both really wanted to spend the summer of 20, I think it was 2014, really rededicating ourselves to our religion. And so uh, Zaytuna College, Imam Zaid's college, uh, and then also this other organization that Imam Zaid works with, they do what they call intent, they, these intensive summer programs. And so the, the beginning of the summer, I spent the first half of the summer in the Bay Area at Zaytuna College doing an Arabic intensive, where you get, all you do is you get up every day, you eat and sleep and, and dream about and eat, and, and like everything is Arabic. They overwhelm you with more than you can possibly do, and then you try your best to do it all, and you can't. But wherever you get to, that's, your, that's the amount of Arabic that you could take in during this period of time. And then the second half of the summer, I came home to watch the kids, and my wife went to Turkey with Imam Zaid and with uh, Sheikh Hamza Yusuf and, and, and uh, Dr. Uh, Abdul Hakim Murad and certain other people uh, to do what they call a Dean Intensive, which is where they do a similar type of program in an Islamic environment in a Muslim country where they give you the, the roadmap of the entire tradition. 
And so my wife went to that program. And again, they overwhelm you with more than you can take in. But you come away from it with a, a, a much greater understanding for how this religion is organized and how to access the knowledge and the guidance of the tradition. So she came back from that experience and said, uh, we're moving to, we're going to live in Istanbul someday. And I was like, all right, don't. But I thought that it would be probably, you know, after we're retired or our kids got older or something like that. And then we just kept having kids. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Me and my wife are not family planners. And, uh, you know, so there, there, there usually is some form of a kid on the way. You know, we had some, some younger ones since then. But during the pandemic, we decided this, is, this might be the time to do this, you know. So we moved to Istanbul, Turkey, and we have Imam Zaid to thank for that. So we're very, very grateful, especially during the month of Ramadan. I actually, we actually filmed and recorded this conversation before I left for the tour. So I was in my uh, studio in Istanbul and just had a really amazing conversation with Imam Zaid. So you get to be a fly on the wall, as it were, uh, for a conversation with one of America's true, true, true living legends in the world of Islam. And just an incredible human being. He shares so much from his life. We're sponsored, as always, by the Zakat Foundation, by UPF, by vice gerent makers and merchants of fine men's tailored clothing, and by Rezma Menikim and his new book that's out now called The Quaking of America. Enjoy this episode. Peace. One of the things that I always come across, you know, most of my most of the people that I perform for and most of the people that listen to my music and support me are not Muslim. And I'm always asked all the time, you know, why is it that people don't seem to know much about Islam? And like Azhar Usman says, if, you know, since 2011 and even before that, we've had a public discussion where we're talking about Islam, but nobody's actually talking about Islam. Nobody's talking about the theological tradition, the intellectual tradition, the spiritual tradition, Islam as a, as, a, as a guidance for life, Islam as a healing force, what Islam has done not only in America but around the world globally, everywhere that it's reached from West Africa to Spain, you know, to, to Turkey and, and all over the world. And, you know, one of the things I find is that people don't even know who our leaders are or who uh, the people are that they could ask, you know, to, to speak for us and to speak about us and to share some insight. And so people always ask me, like, who should we talk to and who should we look at? And your name is always the first one that I mention because it's really clear to me that you're the most universally loved, respected, accepted, I mean, across the, the, the different corners of the Muslim community. You're somebody that, that really leads us, you know, and sometimes we, people will sometimes make the distinction between Sheikh so-and-so and Imam so-and-so, and it's almost as if Imam sometimes is a, is a, a, a notch below a Sheikh, you know, and all these terms are relative, <laughs> they're all used in different contexts, but, you know, when we talk about Imam Zaid, we're really speaking about the fact that you have helped to guide us and to lead us and to synthesize all of the different uh, streams in this community and really be a genuine leader for us. So I'm really happy to be able to, for those that don't know you, that may watch and listen to this podcast, for just to just for people to witness you and be exposed to the beauty that is Imam Zaid. Pray that Allah makes us worthy and uh, Allah gives us strength and gives us uh, humility and uh, 
and through humility is elevation. And mm-hmm. we can elevate ourselves. So if Allah elevates us, we pray that we, we're able to give everything is full, right? Uh, the Prophet mentions, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, a man <clears throat> who charged into a battle. And, and he's, or he said, paradise is for the servant, Abdin, who seizes the reins of his steed and goes forth into the fray, the thick of the battle. And he says, if, if he's in the, the front, if he's in the front where valor is displayed and heroes are identified and reputations are earned, then he gives it its full right. And if he's in the rear guard mopping up, cleaning up the battlefield, dragging the dead off to be buried, he gives it its full right. So we just pray that wherever Allah places us, we can give it its full right. And uh, thank Allah for using us for his religion. Mm. I wonder if uh, I would like to start with your beloved mother, if it's all right. You helped to re-release the, the amazing book that she wrote called Dear Self that she wrote up. Mm. It was about the year 1973, but she wrote it. It was a collection of, of her compiled notes to herself, almost like journals and things like that right, right, right. that came out later. So am I right to understand, if I'm remembering correctly, that she was born the daughter of sharecroppers in Georgia? That's right. Yeah. Uh, Lurleen Spence and Richmond Whitaker in Harris County, Georgia. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, they were sharecroppers. I, I actually, uh, in my youth, the whole family would go down to pick the cotton. So I'd pick cotton. We had the long sacks and you stuff in the sacks. Mm. And the, the owner of the property got most of the cotton. And the, the renter just got enough to, to maintain, but not enough to get off the land. So it was sort of a form of semi-slavery. But for us as children, it was just a gathering place. So we pick the cotton all day and then feast all night. And, you know, the folks down there knew how to cook. <laughs> so, <laughs> but yeah, and they were both descendants of slaves. Um, on my, I think, uh, Will Spence on my mother's side was a slave and Rich Eubanks on my grandmother's side, on my grandfather's side was a slave. So they were really, they were one generation removed <laughs> from, from slavery. So it and wasn't that them, long you, ago. And you, you know, met them and you saw time. them and saw them and oh, talked yeah, to them? Oh yeah, we had, uh, we lived on the farm. My mother, uh, uh, when my mother and father uh, broke up. They got together briefly and then it was all over. But after the first breakup, uh, she was in Michigan and so she took us all back to Georgia and before uh, any public housing opened up, we lived on the farm for a little while. Mm-hmm. And I have distinct memories of that time. I must have been uh, probably about four or five years old. I remember the, the thunderstorms coming and the walls of rain kicking up dust and you're racing the wall of rain back to the house. I remember the outhouse and the, 
the Sears robot catalog with the toilet paper. <laughs> so you had the outhouse. Uh, so it was out of the house, the, the toilet. And, uh, and the, the toilet paper was, oh, because those big, fat Sears robot catalogs, that, that was the toilet. You ripped off a sheet and kept it moving. So, uh, you know, I remember the feast. I remember uh, my grandmother uh, running and chasing down chickens and wringing their necks. He grabbed the chicken and whirled it around until the body separated from the neck and the ch chicken's running around till it realized what happened. <laughs> like the chicken right. realized he didn't have a head and then he stopped running. He said, all right, <laughs> I guess I'm done. <laughs> so yeah, it was a good time. You know, you remember relatives and uh, just family, the blessing of family. I think one of the things we're losing in the fast pace of our modern uh, society is to really appreciate the blessing of family. Family is very powerful. And uh, to have people you're connected with who care about you, who you can share your life with, who are on this journey, uh, we are all on collectively, but from a particular perspective, uh, I think. And that's something Islam emphasizes. Right, you you have you have the the blessing of neighborliness, and then the double blessing if your neighbor is Muslim, and the triple blessing if your neighbor is a Muslim and a relative, and so family accentuates uh, a, a lot of things. Family is the icing on the social cake, so we'll still have society with families degenerating, but. We won't have any icing on that cake. So the sweetness will tend to go out of life. You know, it's one of the things that I, I think that's so beautiful about being connected to a, a living tradition of any kind, you know, whether it's the, you know, something more modern, like a, like a musical tradition or, or something pre-modern, like the Islamic tradition. Uh, but just, it, it really, it really helps to offset and counteract this idea of, the idea that the the ones that come later are always better than the ones that came before them. What's new is always, what's latest is always greatest. That, you know, when we're connected to our grandparents, we know our grandfathers, our grandmothers. We know that like those were people, we're not like them. We're not as strong as they are. We're not as wise as they are. There's a- Absolutely. Even just bearing pain, like we, we, we always say that a lot of times, our parents, grandparents, uncles, they'd be sick. You wouldn't even know because they, they didn't complain. They didn't moan and groan. They just dealt with this. Like, <laughs> I, think, I think earlier generations, they labored under no illusion that life is, is, can be very painful. And that's both in a, in a physical and in a non-physical sense. And so you just have to deal with it. I think that's one thing we're finding in this coronavirus situation that it's not going anywhere and you can't, it's obvious now, I'm, I'm not trying to discourage, discourage people from getting vaccinated, but it's pretty obvious we're not going to be able to vaccinate ourselves out of the problem. Hmm. You know, a place like Israel, they're for people, elderly people, people, they're on their fourth shot and they're admitting that it's not stopping this Omicron. So, you know, we're probably going to move from the alpha to the omega, and we don't know what it's going to going to contain, but we know this is probably going to be with us, like the common cold and the flu. So at a certain point, 
We just have to suck it up and deal with it. Hmm. And I think that's something that we saw in our elders, just their, their fortitude, uh, their, their manliness, their womanliness, if you will. And uh, just to quickly circle back to the, the idea of family and tradition, I think one of the things that uh, tradition, for example, traditional religion gives us, it gives us a family. So we're in the family of Ashafi Malik, Imam Ahmed, Abu Hanifa. We're in the family of their students, Zufar, Muhammad Hassan al-Shaybani, Abu Yusuf. We're, these are our forefathers. These are our grandfathers. And we have our grandmothers uh, also. And, uh, and one thing about family is uh, when the elders talk, you shut up. You don't talk. I, I had last night just one of the uh, youngsters in our family. I, I, I had to like tell him. Uh, he, he wore these gaudy, he, I don't think he wore, he pulled them out, these gaudy fake gold diamond rings at track <laughs> practice. And I'm like, I, I said, listen, we don't do this. I said, mm. number one, I said, listen, you're, you're talented, athletic, you're a good student. I said, you don't need these trinkets for, for anyone to appreciate you. They appreciate you for who you are. And, and you know, he had to shut up and listen. And a lot of people don't get that. And, and he, he subsequently uh, apologized and uh, he took them off. And, but, and so when our elders and our madahib, when they speak, we listen. We don't say, no, well, uh, you didn't know, you didn't have this hadith at your disposal. Or, and so that's why you didn't know. They, they had more at their disposal than we had. And they were a lot closer to the Prophet Wasallam, And they were a lot closer to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Because they were awliya, as Imam Ahmed mentioned. If, if the jurists, the foundational jurists are not the beloved friends of Allah, then no one is beloved. Allah. So these people were beloved to Allah. They were close to Allah. When they speak, we shut up. And I think that's one of the things we lose when we lose family. We lose that ability to subordinate ourselves to the elders. And you know, like the elders talk, you know, we, when we used to go with our parents to, to visit, you sat and you didn't say anything. And if you interjected in the conversation, they speak when you're spoken to. And they were imparting very uh, valuable life lessons to us that, you know, life, successful life is about discipline. Like they'll see someone like you, an artist. They, they see Brother Ali on the stage or in the podcast, but they, they don't see the hours experimenting, trying to get these lyrics right. They don't see the hours that are sent trying to just catch and ride the wave of this particular beat with the right words. They don't see those hours yes, sir. and the discipline that that requires. That is, and, and so they, they, they see the part on the stage. They might even, for some performers, see a lot of a lack of discipline. It's like this cat jumping all over the stage, and, but they don't see the part that requires discipline, that requires self-control. That, that requires restraint, that requires reflection and contemplation. Yes, sir. You're contemplating over a word for an hour. It's like, nah, does this word really work? And, you know, they don't see that patience that, that informs that 
contemplation. And so I think it is, it's very important for us to learn those lessons because otherwise we just think everything is the surface and we're deceived by the surface. We see the performer, but we don't see, we see the great jazz musician. We don't see, my, my brother's a jazz guitarist. And mm. when, when we were sleeping, three in the morning, he's up practicing his chords. Yes, sir. Yeah. You know, we sleep. Yeah. He's up. And so people see him in the club. I wasn't Muslim at the time, folks, so I could talk about the club. <laughs> <laughs> so we see him in the club and we just see the performance. And we say, man, I want to do that. And okay, you really want to do that? I tell you what it involves. My brother up, he's up three in the morning all night practicing his chords. Absolutely. You know, so he can master this instrument. Jimi so Hendrix, I think Jimi Hendrix got kicked out of a movie theater for playing the guitar because he, he brought the guitar to the movie and was trying to practice his guitar during, in the theater. And they said, sir, you got to either stop practicing or you got to leave. And he said, well, I'll just leave. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and so they see Jimi Hendrix, the innovator. But, but what does that innovation, what, what was the price in terms of hours and hours and hours of practice like the the malcolm gladwell right the tipping point the ten thousand hours yes sir the theory's been <laughs> debated but it takes a long time to good good to get good at something the 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 public to use gladwell's uh thinking the public doesn't see the ten thousand hours they just see the finished product and think oh anybody could do that but in reality, anybody who puts in those 10,000 hours, like you said, Jimi Hendrix, they say, oh, Jimi Hendrix naturally uh, gifted or is just plain lucky. It was uh, one of the golf greats. I forget, Ben Hogan, one of those guys. Mm. Someone said, he said, man, that, that, was, that, sh that shock took a lot of luck. You know, was, luck must be a big part of your game. He said, he said it is. He said, the harder I practice, the luckier I get. Allah, Allah, Allah. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. Amazing. Yeah, so your, your, your mother, Allah bless her, was, she ended up leaving Georgia and going to Philly? And go, so that no, she no, could go to school? Uh, Connecticut. Connecticut. Oh, yeah, yeah. She first, before she got married, that's right. Because we, uh, we had family that had moved up to Philadelphia. So she... Went to Philadelphia and graduated high school in Philadelphia. That's right. And then the summer after she graduated, she went to Michigan to visit her sister, Gertrude, who we call her Aunt Gert, mm. who lived over in, in uh, Battle Creek, Michigan. And that's where she met my father. He's from Michigan. And uh, so. And that's where the that's Mitchell where name comes from, your father's side. Father's side, yeah. Okay. That's right. Yes, sir. Alhamdulillah. So your mother, but so your mother wasn't able to uh, pursue the education that she really wanted. But no, she, remained... she she never got anything but an A throughout mm. school, mm. right? Mm. But she she before she knew it, she had six kids, and Mashallah. that was that, as they say. Then we had a seven a little later on. But she kept writing. And she wrote about political issues, and she was well known for her writing even before the book came out later. 
And that's right. She got hate mail from the KKK and death yeah. threats and yeah. Nazis, the Nazis, and, the Klan. Yeah, that's in and the she 70s? would show us that. Mm. That's in the seventies. You know, these folks have history, man. <laughs> so, and uh, she would show that to us, like say, "This is what's out there. This is what's in the world." You know, and and so get ready for it. And that again to go back to like having family and having elders who lived and could just tell it to you straight and aren't trying to make everything just a hakuna matata feel good experience like you got you know we all know the story of like the first time you went to the store mm. to buy something mm. and the neighborhood bully took your money <laughs> and you came home with no milk eggs and bread and no money and your parents told you like you get out of this house. I don't want to hear that. You come back with my eggs, my bread, and my milk or with my money. <laughs> and, and like, and you know, it's reality, you know? And and that's that's, you know, uh the uh what I think is Johnny Cash, a boy named Sue. Yes, sir. Written by and Leonard so Bernstein. He, he, okay, there you go. And and so you know, why'd he do it? Said he, when they finally met up, he wants to kill him, man. I had so much hardship. He said, you know, I knew I wasn't going to be around and you're going to have to learn how to take care of yourself. Yeah. And so they're going to start picking on you early. You're going to have to, you'll, you'll learn how to handle yourself. And then he <laughs> let him up and they had a drink and <laughs> that's the end of the song. <laughs> Mashallah. Mashallah. They drank juice. They drank juice. All the Muslims out there, they they had a they drank a juice. They were at a juice bar. So the the brother Brendan, who's the the producer of this podcast and and my partner in, in our in our business ventures, he used to, he was my DJ for ten years, and we used to do a hip hop cover of Boy Named Sue. On Subhanallah. On stage. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, give us a few bars, man. Oh, that's, man, that was probably, that's almost <laughs> that 20 years ago. Yeah. Oh, it's a pound of love. MashaAllah. So you're talking about the bullies and going to the store. Now you're talking about hard-hitting New Britain, Pinnacle Projects. Yeah, Pinnacle Heights. Pinnacle yeah. Heights. Yeah. They tore it down. I was just recently talking to a, a friend of mine who came out of there, and we were just mentioning, like, the, you know, there's some... It, it was it was rough, but you growing up in the environment for you is normal. But an outsider might say, you know, those conditions are rough. You know, you got, you know, some tough people, people going to prison, even back there be, before the prison industrial complex really kicked in. Hmm. Uh, and, and you got, you know, this and that and the drugs and the this and the broken homes, female headed homes, the, the whole gamut of, of, of issues. But we were discussing how many very successful people came out of there. Like a friend of ours, a little older than myself, Larry Conway. Ooh. And uh, the, the friend I was actually talking with, uh, I posted something on Facebook. And he's, oh, when my father passed. And he saw that and he actually wrote something in the comment. And then I was able to track him down. And we had a long talk. And he was just saying how uh, Larry Conway was going to beat him up in his front yard. Larry was rough, man. He's heading, he's heading for trouble. Mm. And uh, James, this is a young man, that he's not young now, but that Larry was going to beat up. James' mother came out and started talking to Larry. 
and like, like, why are you going to do this? And, you know, you're heading for trouble. And she, she gave it, she, she gave it, she gave it to him and he stopped fighting. He let him go <laughs> and he turned his, his, uh, his life around. And when I was in New Haven, he was a principal of one of the, uh, elementary schools there, the Bassett school. And now, uh, I think James told me he's the superintendent of, of the school system. Uh, another friend, uh, James Yacht, he, he got his PhD in, uh, nuclear medicine. He's working in Japan right now. Another one was uh, a scientist at NIH. He died young. He died a couple decades ago. But we, we, were on the, we were on the football team together. Someone had sent me a picture of the football team. All of us, you got these big afros. And, mm. <clears throat> so this is 1973. Mm. But, uh, you know, some very, very successful people uh, came out of those projects. And uh, then some people have some difficulties. I know many of my, most of them are dead now, died young. Mm. There was a, one friend was living a couple decades, homeless, living in the streets. My brother, who still lives in New Britain, he saw him, he was at pumping gas at a gas station. He said this particular friend came out of the bushes and asked him for a dollar and went back into the bushes. He said, Al, you got a dollar? But I heard recently said that this he cleaned himself up. This is a talented young man, mm. talented athlete, a good student. Uh, but he cleaned himself up. He said he saw him. I'm, I'm going to try to get in touch with him. And uh, he, he's he's working. He's he's out of the streets. So, you know, you have success stories, immediate success stories. You have long-term success stories, and then you have those, you know, unfortunate one. One friend, when I moved back to Connecticut after traveling all around the world, this is in the early, you know, the uh, uh, yeah after I got out of the military. Uh, our next door neighbor, I was at, so we moved back in 1994 from Syria. No, 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 no. I'm sorry. From Egypt. We spent a, a year in Egypt after I graduated college. And uh, so it was 1987, winter of 87, 88. And we went to this program in New York and someone's tapping me on the shoulder and I turned around, it's my next door neighbor's daughter, mm. Sandy Johnson. She's a Muslim living in Boston. Amazing. So I'm a Muslim. And then uh, once we got settled, I started going into the prison on a regular basis. And this guy, two doors down, we were like enemies because he liked my sister. She didn't like him. <laughs> so I had to keep him off my sister. So, you know. <laughs> And he, so I'm going in the Muslim, he's in the Jamaat, Melvin, and he's Muslim. And, and so, you know, alhamdulillah, you know, Allah, Allah the, life is just this wonderful journey. And one who doesn't enjoy it just hasn't stepped back to get a perspective so they could appreciate it.
It's become a theme of this podcast. You know, Zakat Foundation has been so supportive in the launching of this podcast um, because uh, mostly of our sister Amna Mirza and her understanding that culture is an extremely important element uh, to living life with meaning and also an important element to um, raising the, the dignity and the living standard of human beings around the world, which is the, the job, the aim, the mission, the goal of Zakat Foundation. During the month of Ramadan, Muslims are getting hit up by everybody because this is a time where, you know, the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, is the most charitable human being that ever lived. But even during the month of Ramadan, he was more charitable than he was throughout the year. And so we try to emulate whatever uh, level of that we can in our own lives. So Ramadan is a big, major time for giving. It's a major time to, to reassess the blessings that we've had. You know, a lot of us think we don't have enough, but if we really look at what we have, we actually have more than what we need. Most of us eat more than we need to eat. We have more clothes than we need. We have more things than we need. We have more stuff than we need. You know, most of us are wasteful. And so this is a time to really sit with that because we're not eating during the day and we're sleeping very little, you know, and uh, we become... Our, our senses become heightened and our awareness of what we're consuming and the fact that I do not need to consume as much as I do. I don't need to waste as much time, money, food, resources. I don't need to waste as much as I'm wasting. So it's a very beautiful time, you know. And so during Ramadan is a really wonderful time to to approach giving throughout the year. And Zakat Foundation has a lot of really dope programs. It's only $5 to provide a, a, a hot meal for people to break their fast during the month of Ramadan. Um, you know, if, if we aren't able to fast, if we break our fast and we're and f without a good reason, we have to feed people usually as a way to make up for that. And so uh, that's, that's one of the ways that, that Zakat Foundation provides for people. Uh, another is you can sponsor uh, an orphan. It's only $50 a month. And that might seem like a lot of money, but man, how many TV subscriptions do we need? You know what I'm saying? How many $5 cups of coffee do we need, really? You know what I'm saying? How many, you know, all of this stuff we spend our money on. So, uh, you know, for $50 a month, a, a person who is in absolute crisis and catastrophe in their life, uh, their entire situation is improved by that. And so I would, I just highly recommend Zakat Foundation. They operate all over the world. They have people on the ground that ensure quality control for the programs that they have. Um, it's a Muslim-led organization, but you know, other, it's not only Muslims that donate to them, and they don't only help Muslims, and they don't proselytize. That's just not what we do when we're doing it right. Like our, it's our obligation, it's our responsibility, it's those people's right to be served. And it's an honor, you know, it's a religious duty for us. Um, and so that's all there is. Like we don't do this like, hey, now you have to, you know, accept this religion or repeat after me and say this thing and, you know, go through this, whatever. So uh, during this time of heightened giving, please consider giving with Zakat Foundation. Follow them on social media. Uh, Zakat US is the best way to, to, to keep in touch with them. And then uh, also hit up their website, check out all their beautiful programs. Very honored to be with Zakat Foundation. One of the names that comes up on this podcast all the time is Rezma Menikin. Uh, Rezma is a therapist who 
uh, specializes in trauma. He worked with U.S. soldiers in Afghanistan. And when he was in Afghanistan, one of the reasons that he specializes in trauma is because he was with them in a war zone. And uh, he's scheduled to, to come on and talk to us on this, on this program soon, inshallah. But, you know, Rezma started to notice very uh, uh, overt and recognizable trauma in himself. And these are his stories to tell, so I won't retell them. But, you know, he, he's got stories about being back in Minneapolis and certain things triggering experiences that he had in, in Afghanistan serving troops. And so uh, it really made him hyper aware. And then he started to learn about other traumas in himself and in the community and in others. And he dedicated his life and his work to, to working on trauma. And not only in individuals, he says, you know, if, if trauma is not healed, doesn't have the opportunity to heal in a person, this, tra this trauma loop starts to look like their personality. And so we start feeling like this person is this type of person. But in a lot of cases, it's unhealed trauma. And he says in families, it looks like the, 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 this, is what, this is just what your family is like. In communities, it starts to look like culture, but it's actually not culture. It's group responses to trauma. And so he deals with racialized trauma. He has a New York Times uh, best-selling book called My Grandmother's Hands that's really incredible. Rezma just released his new book called The Quaking of America. It's not on Audible yet. They don't have it on audiobook yet. My eyes aren't good enough for me to just sit down and read a book like that. And so I'm hoping that the audio version comes soon. But head to Rezma, R-E-S-M-A-A dot -A com. Check out My Grandmother's Hands. Check out The Quaking of America. Check out uh, all of these amazing offerings that he has. He has classes on what he calls somatic abolitionism. Uh, just amazing workshops and uh, talks that, that, that we can all benefit from tremendously. Resma talks about uh, trauma, healing, and race from a perspective that I've not heard it spoken about in the public discourse. And he's starting to be recognized more and more, and I just can't recommend highly enough. So please head to follow him online, Resma, R-E-S-M-A-A, Menachem, and uh, head to Resma.com, order The Quaking of America, and we look forward to having Resma on the program. This program is sponsored by really incredible partners, and I'm really honored and grateful to be with them. Uh, these are people that I know and trust and love, and that's why some people tell me that my ads are mega long. Like my podcaster buddies are just like, dude, your ads are way too long. It's fine, you care about this stuff. At the end of the day, it's an advertisement, fam. Cut it shorter. But there are other people that hit me up and they're like, yo, I learn a lot from, from what you're saying in the ads. So. Uh, they're extensions of the podcast. They're really part of it. We're we are really grateful to be you know in partnership with these super dope sponsors and and you know people from our community. But along with that, uh, if you go to brotherali.com in the join section, we have what we called what, what we call a caravan. And the purpose of that is to bring people together in a way that does keep us independent. It means that I have choices about who I want to allow into this platform. You know, I don't, I would really like to not have to have big corporations that I don't know, you know, as sponsors. You need sponsors on your podcast. It's a lot of work. There are a lot of expenses involved. You know, it, it takes a lot. So you got to keep the lights on. You got to make it sustainable. But the caravan is one of the ways that really always keeps us rooted in the fact that 
we're supported and this work is made possible by the people who appreciate it, the people who are part of it. You know, I don't see, I don't have this big kind of gap in between, you know, the, the speaker and the audience, the artist and the audience. I don't have this feeling that like you have to stay away from me. You know, um, there are times where I have to protect myself and my energy and my health and things like that. But it's really important to me and it, it's, it's never leaves my mind that the people that really make this possible are the people that engage the music and listen to the podcast and support what we do. So uh, that's what the VIP packages are at the, at the shows. You know, it keeps it so that the ticket's only 20 bucks. You know what I mean? And this podcast is free. Anybody can get the podcast for free and we'll keep it that way. But the people that support in the caravan at these different levels, they're the people that are making it possible for that to be the case. And there are different levels at which you can join. But then not only do those people support, it's not just about giving me money, but it also it, uh, increases the level of engagement that we have, not only between myself and the audience, but between the people in this caravan that have come together because of this, these things that we talk about the intentions that we have, you know, the, 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 the growth and the healing that we're looking to experience, the connections we're looking to make. So if you head to brotherid.com, in that caravan section, in that join section, there are different levels. The top tier is, um, you know, those are the, I think they're called the, the trailblazers. But that top tier, we have a private Slack channel where people really share things that are going on in their lives. Um, you know, there was a, a brother that we haven't heard from for a while. There was a guy that we hadn't heard from. And so I went on the channel and I was just like, hey, so-and-so, what's going on with you, man? And he was talking about going to visit his family. He's like, I'm sorry, I haven't checked in. Um, he's like, man, you guys know I'm a nerd. <laughs> he's like, I got caught up in this fantasy novel that I've been reading and like, I, I just haven't been checking in. But he was talking about going to visit his family that always made him feel excluded, um, and the way that that felt. And I was in Madison, Wisconsin at the time where I was born. And I'm like, man, thank you for saying this. Because I felt that way with my family. If you listen to the first episode of this podcast, that's the way I felt with my family that, that lived in Madison. And so I'm like, man, you just helped me realize that I'm experiencing something I, that hadn't, that had just kind of been running in the background when I'm in this city, you know? And so him sharing that opened up an opportunity for me to share that. And I'm like, man, I should make a song about this. You know what I mean? So shout out to my friend Ted in the, in the, in the Travelers group, in the, in the caravan on Slack, you know, because him sharing that really gave me permission to sit with something that I wasn't acknowledging was going on inside me. This is what I mean when I say we're reflections of each other. We need each other. We give each other permission. We give each other a different way to view things. So head to brotherali.com, go to the section called join, and see what's up with this caravan. You know, it's one of the things, CD, that I've noticed uh, about you specifically. Like you're known for every room that you walk in, you just bring a ray of of hope and a big smile and beautiful energy. And you and I have been in situations because we've, we've done some community living together. MashaAllah, it's a great honor for me to be in the community of you. Uh, and, you know, we've talked about some very difficult things behind closed doors. 
and then walk out and there's a room full of people waiting to see Imam Zaid. And we're, you know, we're talking about people's lives really being harmed and, and, and these really heavy stuff and you walk out of the room and I'm still carrying it, you know, and I look over at you and you say, As-salamu alaykum, you know. <laughs> I mean, yeah. how, what kind of magic act is that? I mean, what kind of, you know. You know what? <laughs> You know, they, you know, a friend of mine used to say, uh, like the opposite, like we're out there and breathing fire, you know, back in the day, ah, kufar, ah. <laughs> and then uh, they say, then after we're at someone's house eating dinner, some rolling on the floor, making jokes with the kids, wrestling the children, say, that's the same guy who was out there yelling at us. <laughs> Subhanallah. But, you know, alhamdulillah. We, 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 the people have a right over us. Mm-hmm. And the Prophet, وسلم, uh, he had great sobriety. And sometimes it's uh, huzn, they, but they said they translated sadness, but I think sobriety is better. But it was in his heart, not on his face. His face was smiling. And he said, uh, amongst his sayings, don't be mean the smallest amount of charity you might give, even if it's meeting your brother with a pleasant face. And and so we don't know, like you're saying, we're talking about some really weighty stuff and some terrible situations, uh, but we're talking about them. We go out and meet people. Many times those people are living them. And the last thing they need is someone that's more depressed than they are. Especially they came to this program to get inspired. And so, (laughs) (laughs) and and you find people like that, you know, people, when we were in Syria and I, and I can understand it because we were there during, we started in the mid nineties. So the the situation in Algeria is still going on, but you find these brothers from Algeria, uh, scowling, you know, and like, you're like, man. Should I give him the greeting if I don't say it right? He might be, beat me up or something. You like, and just you know, uh, it's we we have to transcend. Like we're we're in this world, but we're not of it, and our our hearts can't be mired in the muck of the world. And if 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 our hearts become burdened down, weighted down, and mired in the muck of the world then we, we will never have the opportunity to attach our hearts to Allah in a meaningful way. And, and the path is all about our hearts being attached to Allah. Zuhud is the renunciation of the world. Now, we're in the world and we acknowledge that and we fulfill the obligations that the world has over us. But it's about attaching our hearts to Allah, to Almighty God. And Almighty God is unchanging reality. <laughs> there was a law and there was nothing existing along with him. And he is now as he was then. And so Allah is unchanging. And if our, our hearts are attached to Allah, we could, we very easily maintain an even kill. And we're not tossed and turned and battered by the vicissitudes of the world. And but if our hearts are attached to the world, we're up and down, we're battered. One minute we're happy, one minute we're sad, and be, because that's the nature of the world. They, they say one of the Arab poets said, "Yani man al shamsi." 
like the movement of the sun defies the reality of permanence in the world because the sun's always moving it's moving and the winter is way south if you're in the northern hemisphere and the summer is way north you know every day it's moving a little it's colors changing based on the atmospheric conditions so its color is changing its size is changing when it rises big when it's at the height of the zenith it's small then it starts getting big again as it sets so <laughs> the sun is constantly changing and the changing nature of the sun uh defies the the illusion of permanence in this world so the world is always changing and if our hearts are attached to it our hearts are going to always be changing and that's why we want to attach our hearts to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and then we can we can rise above the world mashallah you know and almost almost every time that we're let down uh, whether it's in by movements that we're part of or community projects that we're attempting to, to be a part of or leaders and things like that, is people being distracted by their lower desires and by their desire for something temporal, for something uh, small. And, you know, we're united by this desire to be connected to the source of and the meaning, the world of meaning, and to make things beautiful. And then somebody gets distracted. Which means just simply that they themselves had never transcended the world hmm. because if, if you're if you've transcended the world the world isn't going to distract you but if you haven't then you're amenable to those distractions and and so that and that's that's why it's really important to when we talk about political struggle and change that we change ourselves first when I was in New Haven, we there was a, a gentleman who remained unnamed, wasn't a Muslim, uh, but he was really working hard in the community. And uh, but he he was known to beat his girlfriend, hmm. and who was a petite uh, individual. You know, some some. <laughs> let's keep moving. But she's a petite <laughs> individual. <laughs> No. <laughs> she's, she's a petite individual, and so we like we made a flyer. We said like, uh, you can't have a revolution without true revolutionaries. Mm. You can't change society in meaningful ways unless you change yourself. This individual also had a cocaine problem, and so we're saying like you're trying to change society, but you haven't even changed yourself. You know, and, and so you, you're behaving violently with, with, with your girlfriend. You, you have a cocaine problem. And so if you can't transcend these things, how do you expect the people to do it? You know, you have to model the behavior that you're calling people to. Otherwise, they see right through you and they don't take you seriously. And, and if you're not taken seriously, you're not going to change anybody. So, oh man, this dude talking about this and that, man, he beating up on so-and-so. And he, man, the dude can't, you know, can't keep cocaine out of his nose. Like, who's who's going to take this guy seriously? And, and so we have to uh, really uh, start at the bottom. And that's the beauty of Islamic transformation. It, it doesn't start at the top. 
and there's a role for change at the top. You know, don't get me wrong, but that's not the the comparative advantage of the Muslims. So we use Adam Smith's terminology in economic terms, finding your comparative advantage, which was a which was a veneer to justify colonization. It's like Ghana. They have a nice climate. It's nice for growing cocoa. So they should grow cocoa and send it all to Europe and we'll make the chocolate and add the <laughs> right, value right. and make the money. Right, you know? right, right. We'll In Belgium. So, yeah, exactly. So uh, if we use that terminology, as Muslims, our comparative advantage isn't orchestrating change at the top. You know, that might be some other organization. Uh, so when people talk about, you know, reforming the police and okay you could change the structures the rules many police minneapolis you talk about minneapolis they were one of the most reformed police departments in the country and you on paper but you still got someone like chauvin in there and we saw what happened and so there's a role for that but if we don't change the hearts and minds of people at the grassroots level, you just have this racist individual going into the reform structures. And you'll still have incidents of, of racially uh, inspired violence and, and other causes, not all racial. I think we, we should be mature and, and, and open about that. But there's certainly a lot of racist going into the military. Now the military is starting to have an anti-racism program to weed out the racist in the military. So you can rest assured this is happening in police departments across the country and other uh, government aid prisons and prison staffs. And, and so, but the, the point is, if there's no one who sees it as their primary mission, <laughs> to change people. The change at the top is only going to take us so far. <laughs> if not, uh, become counterproductive. And so Muslims definitely have a role to play in working for changing the structures and institutions in society. But at the end of the day, there are no racist structures. We hear that talk. We got to change these racist structures Institutions are only collectivities of human beings. Mm, 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 so if the structures are racist, that, that just means there's a bunch of racist human beings in there. And if no one's working to change those human beings, then the structure is only going to take you so far. And I think our comparative advantage as Muslims is changing those human beings. And this isn't just me. This is Malcolm X, right? His letter yes, from Mecca. It was, it was carefully in crafted people. Uh, Malcolm was a very shrewd mm. uh, analyst of society and people. And he knew exactly what he was saying when he said, perhaps if America could, exa could examine Islam, it would help, help America transcend the race problem. And if you don't want to take it from Malcolm, we can take it from Arnold uh, Toynbee. And his, his essay on Islam and the West, it said Islam can offer the West two things. A, a solution to the race problem and a solution to the problem of alcohol. Amazing. <clears throat> and by extension, other intoxicants. And so that's that's arguably 
the greatest historian of the 20th century. He definitely knows societies and people and nations and civilizations. His, his uh, magnus opus is a study of civilizations. So Arnold Toynbee saying the same thing Malcolm is saying. So when you have two great minds from two very different vantage points saying the same thing, it behooves us to listen. And I think this is where I think a lot of Muslims really miss the mark because <laughs> you have a lot of Muslims, especially now, who are advocating for the structural change, the institutional change, and really parroting uh, the, the words and programs of others. And I'm not condemning those programs in any way, shape, or form. I'm yes, just sir. saying, what is our comparative advantage as Muslims, historically and contemporarily? You know, it's one of the it's, it's one of the reasons that you specifically uh, were so transformative for me, because of the fact that um, you know I, I know that you are even more aware than I of the need for the structural changes and the need for the for those things, and you know, but also the the transform that that Islam synthesizes all of those things, uh, and it also gives the ability for a human being to have a deep profound change on a spiritual level, on a cognitive level, on, a, on, on even the level of identity to connect. And, you know, I know that uh, you, when you were young, you were identified as an atheist for a while. I know that you had That's connections right. to the Black Panthers. It was a time when you were really turned on by the idea of, of Marxist socialist ideology, transcendental meditation. And what I've heard you say about that time is that each one of those things seemed to be a piece of the puzzle, but you were looking for some sort of, as a lot of us were, you know, most of us that are inspired uh, to actually become Muslim, it's because of the idea that we have these, this concept of the world and, and the transformative power of, you know, looking at the world outside, but then also internally, and that, you know, the, the, the beauty of Islam in bringing all of these things together in a way that has really obviously been arranged by the source of all, of all things. By the, by the most high, by the creator who created us in this organized way, by the one who originated creation in this organized way, in this beautiful orchestrated way, and then also this particular way and this approach to life. Yeah, no, that, that's beautifully articulated. That's one of the things that really got me into Islam. One, there were other things, but just having studied uh, Marxism, socialism, and seeing what started as basically like uh, Marx stood Hegel on his head. And so Hegel's spiritual dialectic became Marx's economic material dialectic. And, and, so, and, and so it's a very economic determinism, very uh, rigid uh, program. And when the human part is missing and we get what generally and broadly can be termed as Western European Marxism. We had the Frankfurt School and Marcuse Ardorno and uh, uh, Gramsci and Horkheimer and uh, later on Jean-Paul Sartre and that what's called humanistic Marxism. It just didn't naturally fit. And you could tell, like, this 
what Marx and Engels are talking about, this has its own intellectual strain and pedigree. And what these Western Europeans are talking about, the Germans and the Italians and the French, this has its own pedigree. Now, the roots are the same, but the branches are so disparate, or the gears, they're all in the same machine, but the gears just aren't meshing. And uh, the, the beauty of Islam, when I started studying Islam, all the gears meshed, like the social, the economic, the political, the spiritual, all of them meshed together. That alone told me this is not from a human being. Mm. This is a revelation from a source <clears throat> of wisdom and power and authority that's beyond this world. Because human beings have tried to do this and it, it just didn't quite work out. And, and so now to have this system that's so perfectly integrated, it has to be from God. And so that, that's one thing that really attracted me to Islam. And you've had, you've had a long life of academic study, both in the West and then also in Syria and Morocco and other places. Uh, but when you, when you became Muslim, you were in the Air Force, right? Yeah, I was. I was in the Air Force. That's right. And I, I heard you say once that you thought that you had to leave because, you know, all of our great hero, Muhammad Ali, said that he wouldn't go yeah. into the military and serve. And so you were right. thinking at so, one yeah, point. So, yeah, I that, went in and, yeah, in 1976, became a Muslim in 1977. So we're only five years removed from the Supreme Court's vindication of Muhammad Ali's stand. <clears throat> So, uh, yeah, so I tried to get out. So I'm a Muslim now, uh, you know, I can't be in the military. And so I tried to apply as a conscience objector. But the, the chaplain was arguing, well, there's no war going on. How can you object to war when there's no war? So you're just objecting <laughs> to jumping know. jacks. <laughs> <laughs> no, I love the jumping jack part. I do. I, I remember my first semester in college, I flunked everything except weightlifting. <laughs> I had no study habits. You know, I just... That's American, I that was at American that. University or, or Rutgers? No, no, no. That was at Central Connecticut State University uh, in New Britain, right there, the hometown school. I see. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, so I, I was there. And uh, the football coach wanted me to play football. So I'm lifting weights, trying to bulk up. Because I played in high school at the local school. And so that was one of the places before I got hurt in high school. Mm. But anyway, uh, but I, mean, I had no study habits. I'm thinking this is like high school. Like, you know, I don't study. I just, the day before the test, just read up on everything and go and pass the test. The last minute Midterms came, man. I'm like, whoa, I got to read 150 pages in this book and <laughs> 200 in this book. I said, this is a different ball game. But that's to say the jumping jack part wasn't it. Right, right, <laughs> the right. physical exercise was fine. But, uh, but so they said, you know, you can't get out. And I don't know if that argument was sound or they just didn't want to lose somebody. So I said, well, send me to a Muslim country. So they sent me to, to Turkey before I changed my mind. Because even though Turkey is a very secular, it's still 99.9% .9 Muslim. And so you went to Turkey, you couldn't run around with the girls. There weren't any nightclubs. 
to go to uh to speak of and so it, it was no one wanted to go there everyone wanted to go to japan and thailand and the philippines no one they said man send this guy to turkey before he changes his mind mm. and so I, I ended up in turkey and alhamdulillah it, it was a wonderful experience uh, i had really as as you i'm sure you and your family are finding uh really nice people beautiful we we traveled all around to the historical sites and masjids and cities to konya and kayseri and, uh the eastern turkey we went to urfa where the story of uh, ibrahim and nimrud occurred and uh, they still i think it's called the uh, charshi baluk the black fish they say the logs when the fire was uh, stoked to uh, uh burn ibrahim that the water created this pond and pool that still is there and the logs turned into these black fish and the black fish are still there generation after generation and so a beautiful part out there the olive groves and just the the pastel colors of the landscape it's it's a beautiful beautiful land and we we went to hajj from there we just jumped on the bus on the bus with the turks yeah yeah you could do it like that back then we just jumped on the bus and went to went to to first to uh, medina because i met someone in turkey during the summer vacation from uganda and he said well if you ever in the neighborhood come visit so we visited the islamic university there we we uh, got to uh, meet uh Imam Anwar Muhammad's family Imam Anwar just finished memorizing the Quran I think he was 15 16 years old and his family was living uh in very difficult circumstances but feasibly lad to get their children and and themselves educated Islamically they had to fetch water to their house they, they didn't have running water they have to go get buckets of water and you know these are the kind of sacrifices that were made again someone to look at imam anwar muhaymin and the kuba institute in philly and you know imam anwar but they don't see lugging buckets of water upstairs they don't see those years uh living in very difficult uh, circumstances in order to get to becoming imam uh, anwar and his brother anis so uh may allah bless them and so we got to visit them way back then uh i got the beat down from uh, the brothers at the university because at that point like yourself i came into islam and my wife through the community of imam warfuddin muhammad and uh so you know brothers were real nice the american brothers that were there and uh but once they got warmed up it's like you know imam warfuddin he said he's the messiah al-mahdi He said this and he said that and yada 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 and, and I got beat down I'm like whoa mm. whoa like he's mm. up mm. <laughs> so when I came in you, when, I, when I came in that community in '93 that wasn't the language anymore that 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 yeah, phase yeah, that he no, had phased all of that yeah out. that that phase had gone you you move beyond the cockatrice and all of this stuff mashallah Allah's Rahim and Kareem. and everything in between everything in between there that's it, it. <laughs> <laughs> alhamdulillah tabarakallah so when, when did you realize that you had this leadership quality that when you speak people listen to you that when you give advice people listen to it 
At what point in your I life think, did you? I uh, think, I don't know if it was that. Uh, uh, grandiose, but I think when, when we came back to New Haven uh, after uh, the year in Egypt, so I graduated, got my master's, and at that point, I just said, I need to go learn Arabic, study. the. I, I did two years of Arabic at American University in Washington. Arabic was my foreign language. So they didn't teach Arabic. At, uh, uh, American, they taught it at Georgetown. And you could go to any of the, there were six schools. They had a consortium. Any class that anyone taught, as long as your school didn't teach it, you could go take it somewhere else and it would be directly the directly uh, tra- uh, credited to your transcript. And so American didn't have Arabic, but Georgetown did. So for my foreign language requirement, which was a two-year requirement, I, I studied Arabic. But that's just getting your feet wet. And uh, so when I graduated, I said, you know, I spent like technically six years, like four for undergrad and two for the master's. But the undergrad was kind of piecemeal. I did two years in the military primarily through Louisiana Tech University and then and the University of Maryland. They had agreements with the military for college classes. And then I did two years at American University in Washington uh, and then a master's in Rutgers in New Jersey. So when I, when I finished the master's, said I've done four years of university, I need to do at least a year studying my dean. Actually, the plan was to go to, to Medina University. So myself, Abu Muslima in New Jersey, and uh, the Masjid in East Orange. Uh, we both, he, he, he lived in our house uh, when we were at Rutgers. Like, we, had, we, had, we were renting the second floor of this two-family house. Mm. And by stealth, we moved into the attic and rented out the second floor. <laughs> Muslim brothers. You know, and you got, you got to do what you got to do. You got to flip. Sometimes you got to flip it. Yeah, so we, we covered up the windows in the attic so no light, when we turned the lights on at night, no light could get out and people know someone's in the attic. And Amazing. anyway, so uh, myself, Abu Muslima, who was a new convert, we applied to Medina. And so what happened, they're so disorganized back then. I think it's much better now. We're waiting, waiting, waiting. So I graduated, worked that summer, still waiting. So when September came, I said, I'll just go to Egypt. And so I just went to Egypt to to study Arabic and a little bit of Islam. And then uh, two weeks after I left, maybe three, no more than three weeks, then the acceptance letter came. So I, I actually got accepted into the Islamic University in Medina. Mm. And Abu Muslim awaited. So he went there. And then I went to, I was in Egypt. And so I said, you know, I'll just stay here until I'm already here. And uh, so he went to Medina and, and finished the program over there. And, but they've uh, made you an event wherever case, you went. I heard that you, uh, excuse me, uh, forgive me, but I, I heard that... Uh, that you uh, went for a short period to visit your mother-in-law in Hawaii and they made you the imam at the mosque there. <laughs> yeah, that, that was a little later on. I knew mm. a little more. But yeah, that's right. I was the imam there for six months. Well, Hamdi was good. I got to live in a little cottage in Manoa Valley, rainbows every afternoon, what they call the Malka showers. 
tropical uh, environment, <laughs> you know, mango trees on a big mango tree on the property. <laughs> so papaya tree, fresh fruit, tropical fruit. So alhamdulillah, that was a blessing. And New Haven at that time, so when I came back from Egypt yeah. uh, and ended up in New Haven, it was just, you know, whoever knew the Arabic alphabet would be from me now. <laughs> it's like we didn't have the advantages uh, dear brothers and sisters have now. So, you know, I, I'd spent the year in Egypt and I'd done the Arabic at Georgetown. So I, I was a little more advanced than most of the other brothers and sisters. So I became the imam. And uh, alhamdulillah, we, we had we had a good good program going. And that's, this is Allah, like a, a lot late, of impact on the community. Yes, sir. This is... Uh, late 90s, late is, 80s, early back, 90s. 80, late 80s, early 90s. Yes, sir. And then I started teaching political science at Southern Connecticut. I started my PhD at UConn, but that only lasted a year. We were so busy and wrapped up in the community, you know, it was antithetical to PhD study. Mm. And uh, so after one year, I kind of jettisoned that. And uh, alhamdulillah, we, we, we accomplished whatever Allah deemed that we could accomplish uh, during that time from, so 88, 87, 88 until 94. But it was during the, that time that I realized that, okay, I'm getting older now. <clears throat> and this is, I was still working full time. You know, it's like many inner city kind of storefront messages. Mm -hmm. The imam is spelled E-M-A-M. -M. <laughs> like the everything ma'am. Oh, like man. You, 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 you the janitor. You the, the, the accountant. You the, 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 the teacher. The, the marriage counselor. The security guard. The, the, the social worker. The security worker, guard. The, the taxi every, driver. You know, the, the imam, yeah, yes, sir, the, the everything. And so I'm working at Yale University Medical Bookstore. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, doing, I'm doing Juma Kutbahs on my lunch break on Friday. And, uh, yeah, alhamdulillah. That was a and, glorious time, late 80s, early 90s, black, yes, urban Islam. Because we would have the khutbah, we would have our religious services. But, I mean, it was very common at that time to be very, to be that we were very active in schools, that we were approaching, oh, yeah. you know, the, the uh, brothers absolutely. selling drugs and offering them either the opportunity to, to train for in carpentry or the opportunity for us yeah. to run them out. <clears throat> or yeah, I, I mean, yeah, we had uh, what we call the Dawah Mobile man. We had a van and we got one of these PA systems, a Radio Shack powered by a cigarette lighter, and we rolled through the community with the yeah. speakers. <laughs> Telling people come this now. We pull up right in the thick where they're slinging the drugs at and stop and put our prayer rugs out and do salat. Yes, sir. Have one brother guarding us. <laughs> it was it was pretty <laughs> we call those the heady days of the revolution. And uh but it was a great and it was it was pre-gentrification. It's before a lot of the gentrification that started earlier, but had really not reached its peak. So the communities were still intact before everyone kind of scattered and, and those really strong African-American urban centers got broken up and diluted. And so it was, it was a really, it was a, it was a great time. And I think a lot of nostalgia it was so powerful. 
I think a lot of people got, you know, hooked on the nostalgia of the times and mm. couldn't really adjust. Yes, sir. When times started changing. And I think that really uh, broke that kind of uh, opportunity for really strong. And it's happening now, but just a smooth uh, transition, transgenerational uh, transition of sort of mass conversion. Mm-hmm. And, and I say it's happening now because a lot of the young people who left, so, you know, I would say like during the 90s, it started drifting away from yeah. these uh, communities, poor, urban uh, communities and masjids. A lot are coming back now. Yes. And when they were upper teenagers, and the lure of the dunya was strong. And you really, that's when the more negative aspects of hip hop really started kicking in. And a lot of them want to be little wannabe gangsters because they're growing up in this very pious environment. And uh, I think uh, we weren't prepared for that. I, I certainly wasn't because I came back. I came back from Syria, man. Everyone's listening to 50 Cent. And I'm like, <laughs> I'm like, man, this guy cussing and sw- cursing and swearing and talking about doing all kinds of illicit sexual acts and slapping women upside their head. I'm like, Muslim kids are listening. I was like, I was in shock. I'm giving cook bars against this and people thinking I'm crazy. (laughs) (laughs) But it was, it was a shock. And I think we weren't prepared for that. We've been talking about vicegerent makers and merchants of fine men's tailored clothing on this podcast. And it's one of the things that I'm really grateful to share with you because Usman the tailor is a really amazing human being who's reviving really a lost art. It's very strange, you know, that the clothes we wear on our bodies and the food that we put in our bodies and the things that we, you know, even the, the music that we put in our, our minds and hearts that we're, we're completely disconnected from the supply chain of these things. And so the same way, it's like, I would love to know the person that grew the vegetables I eat. Or if I'm a person that eats meat, I would love to know the person who raised this animal. And we hope to have Imam Dawood Yassin uh, on, the, on the program, who uh, is a really incredible human being. He's an imam, and uh, his family only eats food that he either hunted or fished for or, uh, you know, someone that he knows procured it, you know, but they're, they're very intentional about the food that they eat. And that's extremely important because it's like all of the intention and all the process that went into that is going to affect uh, what we become because we are what we eat, we are what we listen to, we are what we wear. We're not what we wear in the sense that like, if I wear Versace, then I'm better than other people. That's not what this is about. But it's about the idea and the reality that if somebody made the clothes that I wear on my body every day and the way that I present myself to people, whether, you know, today I'm wearing a t-shirt, I don't usually do that. 
in public. You know what I'm saying? But it's the end of my tour and I'm feeling beat up. I haven't had the, I haven't seen a barber in a minute. I just, you know what I'm saying? It's what it is today, man. But the clothes that we wear on our bodies really matter and the way we present ourselves really matter and they do have an impact. And so if we buy these things from sweatshops and from major department stores and from you know people in places that have zero care or concern about the impact they're having, you know, or the the uh, the impact they're having not only on the environment, on the people that are making and producing the clothes, or the people that are wearing the clothes. You know, there's so much that goes into that, that you know, I, and I get it. You know, I, I do it sometimes as well. But reviving that beautiful art of uh, having clothes that are made by somebody that you know, made made with intention made with care and concern about the people that do the work and about where the materials come from and about the culture that like, you know, you can, you can go to the store and buy something they call a dashiki, or you could go to the store and, you know, buy, you know, all these, these things that come from, like, there's a culture that produced that. And the per and, and you should know something about that when you wear it. And so I just can't recommend Vice Jarrett highly enough. The experience that you have, if you go to Chicago, you visit Usman, um, you know, his studio is in an apartment building and it feels like a home. It's very dignified. It's very relaxing. It's very calming, but it's also very inspiring. Like he's got a purple wall, you know what I'm saying, where you go in and the colors even in the room really give you a, a deep sense of cool, but also rejuvenation and, and creativity to be able to think about, like, how do I want to live in the clothes that I wear? And then you talk to him about the pieces that you want. And you look and you you touch and feel fabrics. And he shows you different things. And he talks to you about the beautiful things about the body that you live in and, and how we can dress to accentuate those things and to celebrate those things and to be, to be grateful for them. So here I go talking and talking and talking. It's an investment, I'm not going to lie to you, but... Uh, hit up Vice Gerent, V-I-C-E, Gerent, G-E-R-E-N-T, uh, Vice Gerent Official online. You can head to their website. Instagram is the best way to, to stay in touch with them. But hit up Usman the Taylor. Go through Chicago. Check them out. I promise you won't regret it. Vice Gerent, makers and merchants of fine men's tailored clothing. Unity Productions Foundation is a group that we've been talking about on the podcast from the very beginning. It's a really incredible project where creatives come together and they make these really dope uh, projects. Um, you know, they, they do super amazing documentaries and they really are united around the power of stories. They have a program called Unfold Your Own Myth, which is intended to help young people, but it's good for anybody to really unlock and, as they say, unfold the power of, your, of our own stories. Our stories are incredibly important. It's important for us to know that about ourselves because so many of us live lives where we feel like, well, I'm not famous and so I'm not important and I don't really matter. You know, I'm, I'm insignificant. One of the things about the believers is that we know nobody is insignificant because in our belief, you were willed into being exactly as you are by the creator of it all. 
So if you're not important, the sun isn't important. If you're not important, you know, the, the ocean isn't important. You are the Grand Canyon. You, are, you think you're, uh, Rumi says, the great poet Rumi, you think you're just a drop in the ocean, but you're also an ocean and you're also the ocean in a drop. And so every person has a story that's completely amazing because the author of it is completely amazing, you know, from our perspective. And I think that even if a person doesn't have that same worldview or belief, I think that idea resonates with people who care about art, especially art like mine that is story driven. And so Unfold Your Own Myth basically helps young people unlock the ability and the power of telling their stories. And it's important for those for, for each of us to tell our own story, but it's also for each other, important for us to hear each other's stories. And so if you're a person that brings community together, if you work with young people, if you're a leader of any kind, if you, um, you know, work in groups, I can't recommend enough. Head to UPF, like Unity Productions Foundation, upf.tv slash unfold and check out Unfold Your Own Myth. I wanted to ask about, about hip hop specifically, uh, you know, because prior to that, so many of us that came to Islam at the time that I did, we were inspired by Rakim. You know, I'll never forget, Rakim took me on tour when I started performing, me and, and the brother Brendan, who's a producer of the podcast. Uh, and I'll never forget the day uh, in, at Iman in Chicago that you and, and Rakim met. He's the first person that I heard say the name Allah, Lafta Jalala, was the first time I ever heard somebody say, all praise due to Allah, and that's a blessing. And he said something about the Holy Quran, and I wanted to know, like, what is that? You know, you becoming a Muslim in 77, when, when did you start becoming aware of this connection between hip-hop and Islam and, and, and that being the, the new uh, uh, iteration of this black arts movement and the consciousness that was connected? I think that, like, the early 2000s, after getting beyond that initial shock mm. and then learning because you know i'm in syria and we're just studying and we're around the shiuk and the students of knowledge so we're not only isolated and insulated from the cultural currents that are happening in the states uh we're, we're isolated from any non-muslim currents over there hmm. so we're like we're, we're twice removed from the scene if you will and then coming back into it and just uh, really the negative side has now come to the, to the surface because we missed, we missed all the late 80s. We're in the community. We're, and I think uh, the first time I remember any kind of rap was when we were in the Air Force. But we were like hardcore, so we weren't listening to music at all. Okay. But I remember the, the Sugar Hill Gang. That's that's the first thing I remember about hip hop is the Sugar Hill Gang. That would have been seventy nine, so two years after converting. Yeah, yeah, that's it. And I'm in the Air Force. I'm in Turkey, and so some of the other brothers over there, they they got the Sugar Hill Gang and some of the other early hip hop artists. And but I'm not, I'm not, I'm so like I said, I'm I'm over there. I'm when I'm not doing my job which was very focused because I, I was, uh, I, I, I typed code for these mainframe computers. So you had to have these big, huge card decks. You had to type the code in 
and then put the cards in the feeder and that ran the computer, told the computer what to do. So you, I'm just all day typing code into these cards. <laughs> that, and so that's that's all I'm doing. And you had the spreadsheet, you had to read the spreadsheet. So, and then I'm zoned in after that, I'm with the local Muslims. I get off work, man, I'm going downtown. We're going to the Thursday night vicar with the Naqshbandi brothers. We didn't realize it. We, we didn't know what a Naqshbandi was. We just do. Hey, these brothers, man, they go down there, they chant, then they give you some soup. They chant and two brothers read Quran. It's like, man, this is beautiful, man. So we we just we totally wrapped up with the, the local Muslim from you know, Urbar Khan and the Mili Salamet Party C, the National Salvation Party, and that was it. So whatever Sugar Hill gang or whoever else, like we just heard reference and someone might play it when the rednecks let them take over the red radio for an hour or so, but that was it. And so, and then from there, uh, we, we came back. So we were talking, that's early eighties. And so I'm still now, now we're back and we, we like hardcore Orthodox Muslims, man. And we like, we're not listening to music. Hmm. Music is haram. So we so that whatever's happening in the early 80s, that passed us by. And, and then we go to Syria. And so now, so we now we're in the mid-90s to the early 2000s, only coming back and then being exposed to the negative side that led to a man, we got to look at this a little deeper, and then discovering that you have people like Rakim or Dead Prez or KR KRS One and all of these positive people. Absolutely. I, I, didn't, I wasn't familiar with Brother Ali at the time. Well, I was, I, later. I, I was familiar with you. I remember in 93 or 94 going to uh, a predominantly immigrant masjid. And at that time, the masjid were really segregated. There were black mosques and non-black, like immigrant mosques. We used to talk about right, indigenous right. and, and uh, you know, an immigrant masjid. And I went, a group of us went, a small group, and we saw you speak in Minneapolis. And it was the first time we had ever seen a black Muslim speak at one of these places. And they had so much reverence for you, and they were asking you questions that they had been debating because they really wanted to hear you weigh in on them. And so you were becoming a national figure. But then after that, you left to go study more. Right. You know, you were already... You were already accepted and respected and, and acknowledged and then after that went to Syria to study more and I, I just right. you know that that that's a somewhat unique thing for a person it's it's really almost reminds me of what happened to Rumi or what happened to Imam Ghazali you know the, the, this this feeling that like there's there's got to be more self-development and so right. I just wonder if you Absolutely. could talk about that you know and and you weren't a kid anymore when that happened no, no, I, I left, I was 38 years old mm. when, I, when I left to go to Syria to study. But yeah, we just realized like I'm 38 and, you know, I'm, I'm working. And the weekend we're traveling all over the place and we're going to all these demonstrations in D.C. and New York City at the U.N. So we guess we're renting buses. We, we would go to New York many times because you had the Bosnian crisis, then Somali situation. And 
all these demonstrations, we we would bring more people from New Haven than people came from New York. We, we rolling in buses, man. We we coming down. We had the whole Jamaat was mobilized, man. We're gonna change the world. And uh so my involvement was becoming so overwhelming. I said, Well, it looks like I'm I'm like in my mid-30s, and this is the direction my life is going. So if, if I'm going to do this, I need to really learn this thing a, a bit more thoroughly and more deeply. And because it appears this is going to be it. Hmm. And so that was really the motivation to go. And then when I got over there to Syria, I, I was supposed to be with an entirely different circle of people. Uh, there was a brother, Syrian brother, when I was teaching political science in my political science class from Damascus. Abdul Fattah, and his family was a very highly regarded religious family. And his father was one of the uh, very notable Mashaykh uh, in Damascus. And he was the Khatib. He was the Friday sermonizer uh, at one of the very well-known masajid there. Hmm. And so he, he had arranged for me to go to Syria and uh, we were writing, he had a P.O. box, and then the phone. I lost his phone number. And so I, I, I ended up going there and just meeting some folks and falling in with a whole nother different group of people, which could have led to an entirely different outcome than, than what actually transpired. And so alhamdulillah, it was, it was an opportunity to really see people who were scholars, but they also, they were spiritual masters. And so that was a new, new twist because here, you know, if you say to Sufism, it gives a, in the Muslim circles, it gives a very bad uh, name. Especially you know, at that think time. Of, especially at that time, it evoked images of hippies in New Mexico, uh, smoking hash, reading Rumi, and twir trying to wrestle with yeah, and trying to wrestle with Ibn Arabi, and not praying, but you know, hitting the pipe and wrestling with Ibn Arabi and 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 ruminating on Rumi, and that's and that kind of image uh, was just totally contradictory to what we actually discovered there, and you know, it was very refreshing. And so I began studying with one of those, uh, scholar of Tafsir, and but also a student of the great uh, Sufi master Muhammad al Hashimi, Sheikh Mustafa Turkmani, uh, who was also a student of another great master in the Rifai tradition, Sheikh Abdul 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 Samad Abdul Abdul Basit Abdul. Uh, Sheikh Abdul Basid, I'm sorry, the, the Quran recitals of the summit of Abdul Basid, of uh, Sheikh Abdul Basid. And alhamdulillah, you know, uh, I, I was able to study him with him five years, like four times a week after Fajr, four or five times. And uh, I lived in the neighborhood. Then when we moved away for his family purposes, uh, I would ride my bike across time at uh, Fajr. It took me half an hour to get there. And in Syria, the Akama for Fajr is half an hour after the Adhan. So as soon as they made the Akama, uh, the Adhan, 
I jump on my bike at this big black Chinese made bike. It's like a army tank. It's indestructible. The brake rods were metal rods. So you didn't have to worry about these cables breaking and all this. And uh, I jump on my bike and ride across town and get there at Sheikh Mustafa's message just in time for the Iqama of Fajr. And then pray Fajr. And uh, then we had lessons in various Islamic sciences. It was, it was a beautiful time and a beautiful experience. And to be with people who, you know, uh, unfortunately, there's a bad uh, tendency here for Muslims to tear each other down. So much so that when we were filming the uh, thing for CNN, the 25 Muslims, I talked about my experience with the, the young Puerto Rican girl mm-hmm. and how just transformational that was. Uh, the, the producer said that he never saw a community uh, whose leaders tore each other down like the Muslims. Mm-hmm. Uh, why you did deep? Why didn't you pick this one? That one, they don't know what they're doing. But, and it's like, wow. And so to be there in the company of a Muslim who in five years, <clears throat> intimate in, in his house, mm-hmm. in the masjid, in the, the classes in the neighborhood between Maghrib and Isha, never once heard him speak an ill word about any other human being, mm. to say nothing of any other Muslim. Mm. Never, not a, not a single negative word about another human being. Mm. Even when prompted. <laughs> even, even when there's a good reason to say, there's a lot of negative things yeah. to say. And so, alhamdulillah, to see a prophetic character embodied and living human beings is a very powerful experience mm-hmm. that leaves an indelible imprint on one's soul and on one's heart. And so we, we pray that we could just carry a little bit of that light and shine a little bit of it out into the world. You know, I've, I never got, I never took the opportunity to visit Syria, um, but I've, I, you know, I've heard so many people just discuss what a what a illumined, beautiful place and society it is, and there are a lot of Syrians here in Turkey, and so I've I have a lot of you know beautiful interactions with them here. Yeah, you have access to a lot of Syrian scholars there in Istanbul. That's why I'm trying to catch up on this Arabic. I'm trying to really get the Arabic to the point where I can go and sit with them and listen to them and ask them questions and speak with them. Inshallah. Inshallah. May Allah reward your niya. Uh, your intention, may Allah reward your intention. When did you connect with the champ? When did you and Muhammad Ali become close? Yeah, so probably maybe maybe five years or so before his passing, uh, they they were he had orchestrated everything like the memorial service, everything. Ali, this how it's gonna go. When I die, he wanted it to be a teaching moment. <laughs> and uh, where these people can learn about Islam. And, and so they, they wanted to bring in uh, someone to like, just kind of make sure everything was kosher. I guess we could say halal. <laughs> and that, you know, and, and so uh, I, I was brought in 
And then they also wanted just uh, for the saw a front person who would be reflective of uh, of someone that uh, reflected the values of of the champ, you know. So I I was identified as the person to do that by the grace of Allah Taala. And so uh, one of the first things we did was we spent a couple days in uh, Muhammad Ali's house. And uh, so, you know, he's right there, even though communication was difficult, but he was still alert and very lucid in his thoughts. And uh, so, yeah, that was... And then, so then keeping in touch with the team after that. But that those couple days where I really had an opportunity to, to interact, that's where I wrote my two poems for him. Hmm. And right there, and I read them right there in the house. So, uh, alhamdulillah. Then, you know, I, I did something really stupid. He So we went to dinner. And uh, he still had his humor and the love for, for, for the people. Because there, we went to some, you know, high-end uh, restaurant in Louisville, and they had a mural on the wall. It was kind of a plantation scene. And so Ali, he said, "Where the black folks?" <laughs> and and then so you know, and I hope I hope Allah blesses me to find this packed down somewhere. He he on a cloth napkin with a sharpie. He drew me a picture because Ali inherited that artistic ability for, for, from his father. So we all know his father was a sign painter and an artist. And he would paint scenes and for churches and make signs. And so, and, and man, I misplaced that napkin. Mm. Not, not that I want to sell it on eBay, but, you know, I just want to frame it and display it. And may Allah bless me to find it. I mean... It is is somewhere in one of these boxes I got that I haven't opened from many many moves. Hmm. So that was five years before he passed. What was the? Yeah, about five years before the passing. Yes, sir. And and you were with him in his. I remember, I texted you for something. Right. I was in Las Vegas of all places, and I um, texted you, and you said I'm with the champ, and I think. I think today might be the day. Yeah. And then my phone, I went on stage and I, I didn't I didn't like being in Las Vegas. I was there because some of my mentors, a group called Atmosphere, asked me to come. And they've been such beautiful mentors to me that anything they ask me to do, I always say yes. Uh, but I didn't feel like being there. And my phone was about to die. And then my phone died and I said, okay, I don't want to get this news here. And so I went on stage, and when I came off stage, everybody, all of the crew and everybody was standing there looking at me because they knew that I accepted the name Ali because of him, and obviously we all love him so much. And they just all had this look on their face, and that was a difficult yeah. time. But what was it like yeah, yeah, for sure. you to be, to be there during that time? You know, it, it was a powerful experience because... Uh, and mashallah, I, I just read Quran and bickered the whole time and just talked to him, encouraged him to, you know, say this, say that, say this, say that. And uh, alhamdulillah, it, it, was, it was a powerful experience and all the family was there. So, yeah, mashallah, mashallah. 
then I got pretty much assigned to the body. Like everywhere the body went, I had to go. And so it was just me, the drivers of the hearse from the hospital, which to the hospital to the uh, the funeral home. And and so, mashallah, uh, mashallah, mashallah. May I ask, did you did you wash the chant? We did, yes, sir. Myself and uh, a, a local brother that had already been prepared in advance, mm-hmm. like the local. There were there were several cities where he might where there was the Michigan, the farm, Louisville, Arizona. And uh, so there was a team there, but alhamdulillah, I was part of that team mm-hmm. by the grace of Allah. Mm. And then you, you, you led both of the services, the Islamic janaza and then also that public... Yeah, and, and you know, the Islamic janaza, it was all supposed to be one service huh. uh, at, the, at the, uh, the KFC center there in Louisville. But circumstances led to them being separate. And, uh, you know, I think we were really not prepared for the emotion of the crowd mm-hmm. uh, at, at the janaza because... You know, it, it would have, uh, the, the security, and like I said, I was with the body, and so other people were arranging things, receiving dignitaries. That's what led to kind of confusion with uh, President Erdogan. I wasn't there. I came there, it was close to noon, and walked into this whole scene, and the messages were flying and mixed up. Uh, but alhamdulillah, but it is what it is. He's the people's champ and the people were there to to send them off. And I think uh, there'll probably never be a, a public Janazah like that. Although, uh, last Sunday, I attended the Janazah for the 17 brothers and sisters, West African brothers and sisters, 11 from Gambia and the others from Mali and Guinea who died in the, the fire in the in Bronx. The Bronx. Uh. I mean, the, there was folks like blocks around. There was folks from blocks around. And then what was Mashallah. it? I saw a photo. I saw all kind of photos from the from the public memorial service. There's a really beautiful photo of you and Will Smith and some of the other folks that, that spoke. But what was it like to be in Louisville for, for that particular? You know, I think the when uh yeah like yeah a lot of all the boxing greats were there and we had a little private thing with this is basically the family and most of the boxers will smith and all them and i don't know if any of that ever get out it was a it was an interesting encounter but i i you know i i think tyson that was really because tyson's a muslim so mm-hmm. and he's serious about it you know people i think people underestimate as as George Bush might say, people misunderestimate Tyson. <laughs> but 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 Tyson is you know Tyson's making money. He he had his play, his one man play, and he has things going on. Uh, Mike is a very intelligent uh, gentleman, and so I think that that was a Muslim connection. And because uh, you know me and Mike were like throwing dirt on the grave, like everyone else has got their suits on. And, 
I mean, Mike, we had our suits on. It was like, man, listen, Mike, let's do this. <laughs> and, you know. You know, we, um, you know, it's just, it, it's, it's just a tremendous honor. Uh, you know, to call you a mentor and a and a big brother, and you talk about you know people making history. You know, I, I, many of us are very aware, you know, that of the fact that uh, that that we have this tremendous blessing and honor to be in conversation with you and community for you. And I think that a lot of us, we really want to make you proud. And I wonder if you could give an idea of what would that mean? Like, what would it mean for us and, the, and, and for my children's generation to, to honor the, all of the sacrifice and all of the investment, all of the time and the heart and the energy and blood, sweat and tears and laughs and learning and traveling and, and just everything that you, you've invested into this community and into us, what would it mean for us to make you proud? You know, I've never been asked that question, but uh, and now that you ask it, I would say if everyone that I know from those who are younger than myself can reach the grave saying, La illallah, Muhammad Rasulullah, I would be proud because there's a lot of things to prevent that nowadays. You know, if, if and reach the grave just saying, La illallah, icing on the cake would be reaching the grave, saying, La illallah, and valuing this tradition to the point that when we have to make really hard decisions and difficult decisions, that we err on the side of caution. And we, we just don't get caught up in, in things that just aren't our business. And, and I'll, give, I'll give an example, you know, the whole LGBTQ thing plus it's not our business. So what what adults do, you know, that's their business. I'm not here to question, condemn anybody uh, for whatever decisions they make. Uh, but when, when Muslims uh, just jump on this bandwagon, which they which they wouldn't have jumped on even 20 years ago then it's just an indication a lot of what's happening is a product of the nature of our time. And our truth is a timeless truth. And a timeless truth shouldn't be compromised for something that's temporal. And, and so, again, what, what people choose to do, I'm, I'm not here to question that. Uh, adults make adult decisions, especially in a free country. Uh, but I do question Muslims uh, making it their business and their priority. This is not our business. A person's from a person's Islam being good is leaving that which doesn't concern them. And so uh, people's sexual identity, people's sexual practices, uh, you know, that's not our business. That's their business. And and that's just an example. And many other uh, temporal shifting issues. So 20 years ago, people thought generally in our society at large a whole lot differently. Re uh, president Obama came in as an anti-gay marriage president. should never forget that. And 
he went out as a gay marriage president. So I'm not here to give any value judgment to the former or the latter, but just to say that's indicative of a shift in society. And we don't know. There's definitely, there's going to be a, a, a tremendous backlash. And it's going to start with these 2022 midterm elections. And, and so the, when that gains full force in 10 or 15 years from now, Muslims suddenly shift back to a more traditional religious position. And, and so what happens in society controversial or non-controversial uh, that really uh, involves positions that Muslims have historically been very clear on. If, if people can go to their grave holding on to those traditional positions, holding on, and again, not, not in antagonistic uh, uh, ways that alienate people, even though what I'm saying right now will alienate a lot of people, but that intentionally alienate people, not in those ways, but in recognizing we have an amana. This is, our religion is an amana, sacred trust. In Allah ya'murukum ya'murukum and to addul amanati ila ahliha. Allah, Almighty God, has commanded you to deliver the trust to its rightful possessors. <laughs> So our responsibility is to pass this religion on to those who can't come after us as we received it from those who preceded us. Anything other than that is not our business. And so as individuals, we could take this, that position, but as a religion, as a community of faith, we have inherited a sacred trust from our Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, peace and blessings of Almighty God upon him, all the way down. And our responsibility is to give that trust to those coming after us as we received it. And uh, that's going to be our honor. As Umar radiallahu anh said, نَحْنُ قَوْمٌ We are a people. Allahu bil-Islam Allah has honored us and dignified us with Islam. And whenever we seek honor, we seek uh, strength. And anything other than that, Allah is going to debase us. And so if, if people can take that to their grave, I'll be proud. But that, like I said, that's icing on the cake. If people just go to their grave, practicing their religion, affirming its truth, saying, La ilaha Muhammad Rasulullah, I'm proud. Because there's a whole lot to deter people from doing that. How many, yourself, myself, were converts? How many converts have fallen by the wayside? Mm -hmm. You know, probably for every brother Ali, every Imam Zaid, and not, La nuzaki Allah ahada. We're not praising anyone. Uh, but to just make a point, for every one of us, there's probably 10, 15 who fell by the wayside. And so, and this is not to condemn them as bad people. This is to say there's a whole lot out there that will push us and encourage us to fall by the wayside. Mm -hmm. And so someone who can resist those forces and go to their grave 
saying there is no God but Allah, and Muhammad is the messenger of Allah, and in saying that, recognize all of the prophets, Jesus, Moses, Abraham, that probably most of the people viewing or listening to us are familiar with. But we just add uh, Muhammad, peace and blessings of Allah, Almighty God be upon him. So there's a lot to deter a person. There's a lot to deter a lot of really Christian folks from being Christian folks mm -hmm. in this day and time. And so for my Muslim brothers and sisters, those who can hold on and go to the grave with Allah, Muhammad Rasulullah, firmly imprinted in their hearts and, and etched into the deepest recesses of their consciousness, and that belief is translated into healthy practice, I'm very proud. Alhamdulillah. I appreciate you so much. Thank you, thank you, thank you. I pray Allah give you a long Amen. life full of ease and every Amen. goodness. Yeah. And, and I mean, all of us. All of us. And all of us. Give us the ability to stay close, inshallah. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. So, we, inshallah, maybe Allah bless us an opportunity to do it again. Uh, and we'd like to, if anyone listening doing this, uh, anything we said that might be offensive, we apologize for that. Uh, but, you know, open openness and honesty is always the best policy. Mm -hmm. And so we've tried to be open. Oh, we've tried to be open and honest. And we pray that Allah, Allah Almighty God, accepts this from us. And peace and blessings of Almighty God upon our exemplary leader, Muhammad, and his family, his companions, all of them. Tayyip, I must go, my dear brother. Yes, sir. All right. I love you. I won't touch Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, we love you too. We appreciate it. So that's our conversation with the great Imam Zaid Shakir. Uh, it's really important for us, and I, this has happened on this podcast, and I, I hope it happens a lot more, but to sit with our elders and to ask them to share with us how they view things. That question that I asked there at the end, you know, we want to make you proud. We feel so indebted to you. We're so grateful for you. We admire you so much. How do we do that? And he said, nobody's ever asked me that. You know, and I think it's a really important question to ask. And I'm not sure that Imam Zaid realized. Imam Zaid doesn't come to my shows. Imam Zaid is a very orthodox uh, Muslim. Um, you know, so I, he doesn't go to bars and concert halls where I have my shows. You know, some of my teachers will come and see my shows. Imam Zaid has not. And I'm not, I'm not sure if Imam Zaid realizes that the majority of people that listen to my music and this podcast are not Muslim. So a lot of the conversation we had is 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 what you would hear between Muslims of our generation, you know, converts of these our, our two generations. And what Imam Zaid is referencing at the end is something that's extremely important, which is the fact that, you know, um, the modern world basically threw away so much of what came before. And so you have modernism. You know, modernity is at the time that we live in. And we're supposed to be at home in the time that we live. But modernism is this idea that the people living now are the best people that ever lived. And the people that came before didn't know what we know. They weren't as virtuous as us. They're not as just as us. We're evolved. We're better than them. And then we have postmodernism, which looked at the, at the modernists and said, like, oh, you still made a big mess. 
And so now the postmodernists come to critique and try to correct and try to make progress upon what the modernists did. And they create frameworks around that to do that. What Imam Zaid and so many of our teachers remind us, not only in the Islamic tradition, but also in First Nations traditions, also in other spiritual uh, and religious practices and systems, what they remind us is that there was a framework that existed before these modern times. And so oftentimes that perspective that could be of great benefit to the conversation, um, it's not going to fit into the binary that we have now. You know, where, so he, he, he brought up the conversation around GLBT and it's a, it's a really tricky one. You know, and it's and it's a highly charged one. And what Imam Zaid is saying is like, let's remember that we're from a tradition that the conversation, the two sides of this of this argument or this debate or this, you know, if you want to call it a conversation, the two sides of these conversations, neither one of them are ours. We have a worldview that understands these things differently and has a different perspective on them. And so what he's saying is, let's proceed with caution and let's really try to be rooted in this pre-modern worldview that understands, um, that, un that has a different epistemology, a different set of first truths that we're rooted in. And that perspective can be of benefit, could potentially be of benefit to the conversation that there are, are other alternatives with which to um, understand uh, these realities, all of these realities that we have, you know, and so I've heard Imam Zaid say very similar things about Black Lives Matter, you know, that very clearly uh, white supremacy, racism is something that has to be addressed in, in this time and culture. But and so he says, you know, so we're not with, you know, we're not on the left and we're not on the right. The people that have a pre-modern wisdom tradition, we have something that predates these and a lot of those understandings were, were thrown out. And so I'm very grateful and appreciative, all, even though I, and he mentions, he says, you know, there are people that this will alienate because it's very difficult to understand something like that. This is my, um, this, this is the way that I read what he was saying, that there are people that will be very difficult to understand that. It feels like, no, there are two sides of this argument. Either you're on my side or you're on the other side. And so what Imam Zaid is saying is like, we're not here to, to, to criticize anyone. We're not here to act like it's our business. We're not here to, uh, definitely not to dehumanize anyone. We're not here to castigate anyone. We're not here to alienate anyone. We're definitely not here to, to mock anyone. We're not here to, you know, to harm anybody. That's not what we're here for. You know, also uh, the way that the conversation around gender and sexuality is formulating now, you know, we have a pre-modern wisdom tradition that has different first principles. And so it's going to have a different approach to this as well. And so I think that, that it's really important that with our elders, you know, and he's not only talking about this specific issue. I've talked with Imam Zaid and I've been close to Imam Zaid when really horrible things happen in the Muslim community. You know, uh, we knew a leader that was hurting people and he and I talked about like, how do we deal with this? You know, and Imam Zayd, you know, said the same thing. We're going to err on the side of caution. We're not going to protect uh, a person that's har harming people and we're not going to prop him up. 
You know what I mean? And we're not going to enable this. And we're not going to and we're not going to gaslight these people that this happened to. So we're not going to cover it up. We're also not going to publicly shame and cancel the person and spread this bad news. You know. So it's like we uh, we have a different approach that we have to really proceed with caution. Because it's easy, I think, to have knee-jerk reactions based on our own experiences. But one of the things that our elders do is give us the perspective of time. You know, when Imam Zaid says, I think what he's saying is that conversations and norms in this particular society, because it's not connected uh, necessarily to... Um, it's not connected necessarily to a, uh, a, a belief system that predates modern conditions and modern circumstances that, you know, the, the public opinion can sway drastically. And so do we want to be people that are in our tribe and in our group and, f and, and you know, right in, in lockstep with what's happening in this moment? Uh, that's not what we want. You know what I mean? Because that's the way that, you know, so many people that have done horrible things and so many people that have done things that they later regret. You know, I've been close to people that have been canceled and I've seen the lies that have been told about them, you know, and I've seen the horrible things that have been spread about them. And I know people that have committed suicide because of this stuff, died of suicide. And I also know people that have spread bad information that feel regret. I see these people and I know that they regret jumping out the window because like, well, we're all saying that this person is, uh, is harmful. We're all saying, it seems like our community all seems to agree that this person is bad or this institution is bad. And so we're, it, it's, all, it's all, you know, all gas, no brakes, all green light on their head right now, you know. And I've seen, been with people that two years later really regret some of the things that they said and they don't know what to do about it. So I think it's, it's important for us, it's important for me to sit with our elders and to ask them to share their perspective with us and to listen to them and to consider what they're saying and to not treat them, um, to not treat them like, like their uh, perspective isn't helpful to us because I think that it absolutely is, you know. And especially when we sit with people like Imam Zaid, who also are listening to us and also want to know what we think about things and also want to understand how we're perceiving things. Um, you know, this is the beauty of what, of what, this, of what we're attempting to do here. We're co-travelers. Some of us have walked these streets before, some of us, some of us, you know, I remember when this, this horrible thing in the Muslim community happened, uh, I, I, you know, I was close to a situation. I called Imam Zaid and I said, at the end of the conversation, I said, Imam Zaid, I'm really sorry to have to give you this bad news. And he just smiled and, you know, he said, Brother Ali, this is not my first rodeo. <laughs> like, man, I've been through this before. And I forget, we forget a lot of times, they've been through stuff that we can't imagine. You know what I'm saying? So I'm very grateful to Imam Zaid, and I love him, and I'm not apologizing for him uh, at all, and I'm not trying to, you know, what, what I am trying to do, though, is provide a context that I think that a lot of us miss. I'm a person that loves elders, and I love to listen to them, and I might not say what they say, and I might not say it how they say it, but that's why I'm listening to them, 
because I want their perspective. I want their opinion. I want their wisdom. They can see us in a way that we can't see ourselves. They see our time in the way that we can't see it. You know, the, the fish that jumps out of the water lands back in the water and tries to tell the other fish, we're in the water. And the fish are like, what's water? Because they don't have that perspective. You know what I mean? They have no idea. They've been in the water their whole lives. They don't know what water is. You know what I'm saying? So this is the purpose of this podcast. And I'm very, very grateful to Imam Zaid. Uh, special shout out to all of you. Thank you so much for rocking with us and being on this journey with us. Uh, I want to give a special shout out to Emna Mirza, to Mansour Panawala, to Last Word. Uh, special shout out to Mark from Medina Hip Hop that created the logo. Special th uh, thanks to Ant who did the the Traveler song and allowed us to use the theme, the the beat as the theme music. Uh, special shout out to everybody that's participated and helped in this endeavor. Uh, special shout out to Amir Rahman. Special shout out to Darian Wa Darian Washington, uh, the producer of this podcast. Is is my dear friend, my brother, uh, Brendan Kelly, a.k.a. BK1, and it is a production, and it is a uh, production of Travelers Media. Thank you so much for being here with us. We love you. We appreciate you. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.